Okay, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Credal Catholic, a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. I think you're going to like our topic that we have lined up today. We are going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino and the theology that we see in his movies and some other philosophical ideas that we see coming through them. And to talk about Quentin Tarantino, I have a cleric of the church whose last name is Baron, who talks about pop culture. It is not Bishop Baron. You may have heard of that name, but this is actually the greater Baron, Father Jim Baron. <laughs> Father Baron is my my pastor at Holy Apostles Church in Colorado Springs. He is also one of two associate directors of vocations for the Diocese of Colorado Springs. So if you're listening to this and you you might be interested in discerning a vocation, you can reach out to Father Jim and talk about that. He also holds an STL that is a licentiate in sacred theology in marriage and family life studies from the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Life Studies in Rome. So Father, you were in Rome for four years doing that? Five years? Five years. That's awesome. Well, welcome to Credo Catholic. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you here and hopefully you'll have such a good time. You'll want to come on more because I'd love to have you back for more conversations. Absolutely. This is, I hope just the beginning, I still want to dig into the topic of your, your licentiate thesis talking about uh, Alistair McIntyre and Rene Girard. I had Leah Labresco on the show a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago and she talked about Alistair McIntyre as one of the formative influences in her decision to become Catholic. Wonderful. Yeah. She said that she was an atheist and read McIntyre and thought, this is it. This is how an atheist can have a coherent ethical framework. And then she found out to her dismay at the time that McIntyre then became Catholic. Mm-hmm. So pretty cool. But today we're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you're a big fan of his work. You were over at my house for dinner last month, I think it was. And you mentioned Pulp Fiction is one of your favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a really interesting opinion about that movie. And I'd love to hear you explain more about that. And then I know that you also have some interesting ideas about Inglorious Bastards and you just saw his movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has been all the rage. I think it might get a few Oscar nominations based on what I've been reading. I've not yet seen it. Um, was I've not been able to get to the theaters yet to see it, but it looks really interesting. Maybe his most interesting get. I don't know. I'll have to get your opinion on that, but I'd like to talk to you about Tarantino. And so maybe I'll start off with this question. What's your favorite Tarantino movie? You know, at this point, I would say Inglorious Bastards. Okay. Yep. Um, why? Because, well, first, he's a master of dialogue. And what that man can do with the script and how he can use dialogue to sort of draw the viewer into the movie more and more intensely. And then especially in that movie, you see the use of comic relief. Uh, for example, there's the the entry, the opening scene where you've got uh, a car full of, of Nazis bringing Hans Land, the arch-villain, to this small French farm house and they're they're questioning trying to find Jews that he believes are hiding in the house and you know this the scene is just getting more and more intense and it's all in the original language which I think is also brilliant right um I, somebody had said and I wish I had this sort of citation of this quote uh or who who told me but they said that this was the first film that Tarantino made after watching the passion of the christ which was all in original language and he drew that idea or that inspired him to do so for inglorious bastards so just the, the power of dialogue and all in the original language. And then again, you have this arch villain who speaks, he's a polyglot, several different languages. But in this really intense opening scene, you see all of a sudden as you, know, you think the, the tension can't get any tighter, he pulls out this cartoonish uh, smoking pipe and, and it sort of breaks the tension so that he can go even more tense. 
and sort of lead you into it even more. So uh, just the use of the dialogue, how he displays that, but also that's really his, I think, tour de force, at least up to that point, uh, spoken through the words of Brad Pitt at the end of the movie as he's, you know, a- after he's just carved a, a swastika into another Nazi's forehead. Right. Um, he says, you know, speaking to his uh, his little coworker, you know, I think this be- might be my best work yet. You know, he's saying that in the person of the character, but also that's Tarantino saying that about the film. Right. And it displays the power of film uh, just with the whole nature of the thing itself, what happens in the climax of the movie. And I don't know how much you want me to go into this. I could go on forever. Oh, yeah. Keep going. But uh, so you've got not only a lot of the the great references to other films, Tarantino is a big um, he's a he's a very promiscuous film viewer and art consumer. Uh, and you see that present in every one of his films. He'll have a lot of different hat tips and references with a screenshot, with a particular, um, you know, quote from a character. But in this one, you see especially not only the use of sort of homage to previous films, but the whole climax of the movie and the downfall of the bad guys happens in a movie theater with film being set on fire to cause this great blaze. But it's even more so, that's kind of the, the window dressing uh, I, I believe you got to get through his window dressing to see even some of the more deep messages, whether or not it's intentional. This is uh, another thing we should talk about tonight, but it's, there's something there. So in this one, um, the, the power of film, you see Joseph Goebbels, who's, uh, he was the, the minister of propaganda for the third Reich. He's, uh, kind of orchestrated this whole evening celebrating the kind of the, the triumph of the, the Nazi regime through one of its soldiers who, who was being decorated and recognized for, uh, for his work, uh, basically killing American soldiers as a sniper. Um, and so he creates this whole film about, about this occasion. And this is the occasion when Hitler himself comes with another of the uh, other high ranking Nazi officials and people that are high up in the third Reich. And that's the moment where you start to see this climax build to its peak. And you see the Nazis cheering as they watch, uh, the, the character in the in the bird's nest up in the bell tower picking off Americans. And, of course, you feel, as an American, a bit of disgust at that. Yeah, there's sort of a visceral reaction. Yeah, and, and in some ways, I think the Nazis are just, it was almost um, not a non-issue, just who it was. They needed a bad guy, and the Nazis are the archetypal bad guys. But by showing this and showing their behavior to that kind of a view, then you see one of the... Um, one of the inglorious bastards, one of the the guys who was commissioned to go basically on uh, on a suicide mission to kill Hitler, he's in the balcony from an elevated position picking off the Nazis. And so at that point, Tarantino kind of holds up a mirror to us in the audience. You know, we were disgusted at these people uh, cheering on that sniper. You know, and what, yet, are we, what are we doing? Right. You know, is exactly. this something that has drawn us into it? Again, the power of propaganda, the power of film. And, you know, so I think a lot of that, he's got such a, a great way of drawing the audience into the moral issues that are being brought brought up for consideration, again, intentionally or unintentionally. Well, like, I, I think it would be a mistake to to think that could be unintentional because it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like great, a great piece of painted art, right? Something like that, every detail has been painstakingly poured over by the artist mm-hmm. for hours per square inch, probably. And so... It's, you know, if you, if you look at a, a figure and think, I wonder why this person's pinky is folded where the ring finger is not, that's not going to be an unintentional decision by the artist. So there's going to be a reason there yeah. for it. And so similarly, I think with a movie, I mean, Tarantino, uh, like you said, he, he tells the audience through Brad Pitt, this is his best work yet. This is something that he 
put thousands of hours into probably while he was making it and and writing it and directing it. And so I think we we have to see all of these things as intentional to at least some degree. Yeah. And even if they're not fully consciously intentional, any artist, whenever they're making any work, they have their unconscious thoughts and intentions express themselves on the canvas or the, the page or the film, whatever. So I think there's a degree of intentionality to every part of that. I think that's fair. When And Tarantino, he is so widely read and has seen so many films both popular and obscure and he's so free to kind of pick and choose and borrow and imitate but he does so and what results is so utterly original and so you know the things that he might be intending to say could also be coming across as something that looks exactly like something that was in a film 40 years ago right yeah I think that's that's accurate and I've sort of been on an interesting interesting pilgrimage myself with respect to Tarantino's films because I, so Inglorious Bastards, for example, I've seen it exactly once. And after that once I turned it off and was just like, what did I just watch? This was gratuitously violent and I didn't understand the point. Um, and it was pretty shocking. Um, I think that's intentional. Like we just talked about all of those things are by design, but let's talk about that for a little bit. I think the chief objection to Tarantino is that he's just too much, that the violence is just too much, that it's gratuitous. Um, Pretty sure my parents have never seen a, a Tarantino film, for example. But if they did, they'd probably be horrified and they'd probably make it five minutes in, depending on the movie, maybe a minute in, you know, mm-hmm. and then they would just turn it off and would never watch another Tarantino film. So talk to me about that. What's the what's the deeper significance of the violence in these films? Because they do get pretty horrifying. I don't know if he would say that there's real significance to it other than the fact what he does with it. It's very theatrical and it makes you very uncomfortable, which may just be the point where you've got... 10 people being killed in a Tarantino film and you feel every drop of blood that's spilled versus, you know, Rambo with a huge body count. Yeah. You got a hundred people blown away and you just don't blink an eyelash. Right. Like, you know, it's okay, move on. And so I, I think in some ways the fact that he, he makes the audience feel it, um, even if it is theatrical and that's probably exactly the vehicle that he uses to make us feel it. Uh, I, I think it's, it's probably made, Maybe responsible isn't the best word, but I do think that there's something to, um, to to say about having to stop and think about death and killing and the violence that we see, and it should make us uncomfortable. Yeah, I think there's something to that approach because as you were talking about how he makes the audience uncomfortable and other movies don't, I was just thinking about the Marvel movies, for example. I mean, the destruction and carnage that happens in your average Marvel movie mm-hmm. is on a scale totally different from a Tarantino film because Tarantino is, you know, a man might walk into a room and kill five people in the room. Uh, in a Marvel movie, you'll watch, you know, half of New York be disintegrated. Right. And, yeah. and, and countless people with it. And yet when you're watching Marvel, you're not thinking about that at all. Right. You're just like, Oh wait, come on, Iron Man, you can get him. Exactly. Totally different approach. Mm-hmm. And so Tarantino, I think does, he makes you squeamish, but I think it's probably by design. And that then makes me wonder if there's anything to a comparison between Flannery O'Connor and Tarantino, I'm not sure if you've read much O'Connor. Oh yeah. But I mean, she, she's a master of this sort of grotesque violence as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the most representative example that's accessible, if any of the listeners want to pick up and read a good man is hard to find. It's just a short story, but it is a great example of the shocking carnage that can take place in an O'Connor story. And she's, she's obviously asked about this cause it's one of her signatures in her work and she says that it's basically a way 
to introduce grace because it's only through the shocking realization of how badly in need of grace we are that one can come to appreciate the grace that we're offered. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about a, a, an O'Connor Tarantino comparison? Is there anything there? I, I absolutely. I think so. Uh, O'Connor had very little patience for whitewashing the human condition. Uh, I think she, I don't know if she was a, a fan of Bonhoeffer, but certainly didn't believe in cheap grace. Either. Right. Right. Um, there's a letter that she wrote to Christian artists and their responsibility to be honest and sincere when it comes to the human condition, that there's something that they have a responsibility of portraying what is true. And without that, then you really risk minimizing the condition into which God reaches out to us. Um, and, and it just, it whitewashed humanity is bad art. I'm, I, I realize that there's a place for a lot of the, the cinema that has a very strong Christian message, but in many ways it's just spoon fed and it's very, um, not just accessible, but it, one, it's a violation of the craft. I think there's no, there's no real tension. It's sort of a, a dra- dramatized sort of surface level tension in most of the films. Um, it's sort of like the, uh, the Thomas Kincaid of film. Yes, that's a good, yeah, I, yeah, I like that. Um, so, you know, Flannery O'Connor, again, very much about the human condition and sin the reality of sin and she's not afraid to look at it right in the face. And she wants to invite her readers to do the same thing. I think that's a great parallel to Tarantino that, you know, the humans are capable of terrible things and we got to realize that. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, He has a very important insight about not kind of raising our kids to be naive and to think that they themselves or other people aren't capable of, of, of sin and of bad actions and of harm. Um, you know, without that, then, you know, we, we, we have nothing to say about an El Paso or a Dayton, you know, God rest the souls of the victims and comfort of their families. But these things are real as horrifying as they are. And they should horrify us because that shows the depths of sort of a nihilistic, godless, dark way of looking at the world. Um, but if we pretend it's not there or that so many people aren't capable of something like that, then I think we're really doing ourselves and the next generation a disservice. You know, if we whitewash humanity, then you know we're we're kind of anesthetizing ourselves in some ways. I want to get back to this discussion of the theology of Tarantino, but your last point there made me think of a possible objection to viewing these movies, um, and that is that the objection would go something like this: Why do I need to watch these movies or engage with these works of art when I already know how bad the world is? Sure. And I've heard this objection because, as you know, I'm a big Breaking Bad fan. I do a whole podcast on Breaking Bad. I know you haven't seen it yet, but you, you really should. It's great. But that's a, that's a pretty dark show. And the whole reason why I think Breaking Bad is brilliant is, is for some of these same reasons that you're talking about Tarantino's brilliance. And that's that it illuminates the human condition in a way that I haven't seen illuminated before or outside of that show. Mm. And, but people say, why do I need to watch this? I already know how dark the world is. You know, what I need when I get home from work at the end of the day is something uplifting. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I understand the need for, for uplifting things. Um, but my response to them, I think, is something like, uh, you may think you know how bad the world is or how bad the human condition is, but this show will tell you something that you didn't know already about it. And I think it's it's good for us to be acquainted with our condition so that we can be better prepared to encounter the grace of God. But that's that's my response, though. I'm curious to hear what you would say to that. Sure. There's a certain point where I stopped being sort of an evangelizer for Quentin Tarantino. Sure. Not because I yeah. don't think his films are great or that there's not something that's fruitful to draw from them, but 
you know, everybody's in a different place in their own sensibilities. And you know, I, I want to respect that. And there are other ways to, you know, to be confronted with, with the fallenness of human nature. You know, if we spend any time even in our looking at our own consciences, um, you know, unless, unless we have a great amount of pride, overweening pride, then we're going to be confronted with the fact that we fail. We're broken. We need help. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's approximate issue. The, the idea of what human beings are capable of, but to your point, this is a good way to, to kind of name it and to see it. And, um, you know, the purpose of stories is to kind of engage the imagination. And by engaging the imagination, you start to engage other things like aspiration for virtue, or you can learn lessons from other people, you know, the great moral fairy tales, or you can learn about how to grow in virtue or vices to avoid based on these characters. And so, you know, it, it can be a helpful thing, but, you know, like I said, it's not something that I say everybody needs to see because, you know, some people just have a certain sensibility that this would um, unnecessarily scandalize them. And I just don't want to do that. So I usually limit my my recommendations to kind of, you know, a passing remark like I enjoyed this film. The more I get to know somebody and I think that they would be able to benefit from it, then, you know, I would share that and say, you know, hey, let's watch this. I'd like to explain it to you. I think that's a good recommendation, especially coming from someone like you who has pastoral experience, because yeah. it is a good reminder. I mean, not everyone is uh, not everyone has the same level of sort of squeamishness or the same tolerance for these types of things. And I think it's probably accurate to say that there's not necessarily anything intrinsically good about Tarantino's films, but that um, the the attitude of the approach you bring to consuming them um, reflects on the morality of the art itself. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, so yeah, it's not for everyone. I think is accurate. I mean, maybe in some ways, you know, you'd, you'd go to go into some people's house and you have um, a piece of art that is pretty dark, and then you go into another person's house and they might have um, a lot of those little precious moments, angels sitting on shelves. You know, um, I don't want to pass judgment on people who have precious moments, <laughs> angels. Uh, that is, that's the art that speaks to them in in that way. So, um, that's all good, but let's talk about Tarantino's theology. You know, as I was uh, prepping a little bit for our conversation here, I found that there is a book length discussion of Tarantino's theology called appropriately Tarantino and theology. And it has about 10 or so essays from various scholars talking about Tarantino and theology. So this is not a new topic. People have definitely explored the nexus of Tarantino and theology in, uh, in the recent years. I think that book was published in 2015 or 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot to, discuss here and we already talked about the the similarities between tarantino and o'connor o'connor of course was a very devout catholic uh extraordinarily devout um tarantino apparently grew up catholic that's what i saw i hadn't heard that but yeah it, it wouldn't surprise me yeah i saw that online uh also wouldn't surprise me i'm i'm pretty sure he's not a practicing catholic now good, good chances. Uh, <laughs> uh probably uh, fairly certain on that but i i did encounter a an interesting question about him that someone posed online. And that is, uh, do you think Tarantino is a pre-modern or a post-modern filmmaker? I think a post-modern filmmaker, and please uh, chime in here if you think that my explanations could, could use some clarifications or corrections, but I think a post-modern filmmaker would be conveying the message that um, none, of our, none of our systems for evaluating ethical action are adequate because... Uh, because there is no good system for evaluating ethical action. I think a pre-modern filmmaker would say we've missed the mark on evaluating ethical action because um, we should be placing a premium on different um, different priorities for ethical action or for ethical decision-making, uh, things like tribal loyalty and things like that. Um, 
So what do you think, pre-modern, post-modern? And do you have clarifying comments on the distinction? You know, I think um, well, so often with postmodern art, the they kind of do away with many forms, but also meaning itself. Right. You know, there is no meaning, or at least the meaning is in the viewer. So Whereas, it's it's quasi nihilist, perhaps. Maybe maybe not. I think it's it's more you know like an expressionist. They they are putting something on on canvas, um, but then they want the viewer to sort of come to their own conclusions. Um, you know, they might have them, but they don't want to insist on what the viewer sees. Um, whereas like post postmodern, like there is no meaning. It's right, just sort right. of there. It's a statement and you know, it's meant to just kind of echo through the nothingness. Right. Um, I think with Tarantino's films, you see characters that are very much kind of pre-modern that they do have some, some form to their lives that there is some identified code that they live according to, and they might still be trying to work it out, but they are thrust into this world that, has lost those forms. You know, Tarantino has a certain amount of nostalgia for the 1950s and 60s and sort of those values that ended up going over to Italy with the spaghetti westerns right, after right. America yeah. kind of you know, threw itself into you know, hippiedom. Um, but, you know, with the, the 1968 and afterwards, when you see I, who, who described, I think it was quoted in that article, that's the year that you know, the West attempted suicide. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It was just kind of a, I think that's a very good way to understand it. And this is the culture into which he introduces a lot of his characters. You know, in the, the scene in Reservoir Dogs where they're talking about tipping, you know, and the morality behind that, that's an example of, you know, wrestling in this formlessness to try to have something that is formable or something that you can kind of identify and cling to. Um, and so many of his other characters that would be, you know, ostensibly the heroes, uh, Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill series, she operates according to a certain code. But everybody else and sort of the world in which he lives, uh, there are elements of it and especially sort of the, the Shinto and the Japanese mm -hmm. uh, warrior culture. But otherwise, you know, everything seems to be up for grabs. And Pulp Fiction, I think is much like that as well. It, it, it turns out. Yeah. I think you see the characters develop in such a way where there's a divergence with, right. um, you know, John Travolta's character. He kind of maintains that formlessness, especially after the, the miracle, right. That, or right. at least which Samuel Jackson identifies that. Right. And Jackson embraces sort of the form he embraces that that sort of structured existence whereas uh, travolta just says it's nothing it was a coincidence it was just a freak accident and you see how his life goes and what happens to uh to samuel jackson and his character you see it also with uh, bruce willis and you know he was sort of in, in many ways sort of an active nihilist um but then as he and and bing rames are in the the basement of the the infamous pawn shop uh, there's a moment where he makes a choice for uh, for defending his former enemy, or you know he, he stops being his enemy and becomes his friend at right. that moment, where he decides to come back and save his life. Um, and it might have been more out of hatred for the the perpetrators of the crime, but in that moment he does make a choice and lends form to his life and to Ving Rhames's life, and their relationship now has a new definition, where it's it's effectively he's engaged in this action of redemption. Um, you know, Samuel Jackson embraces redemption at that moment. Bruce Willis embraces a form of redemption, and and it's it's worth noting as uh, as he goes back to um, to his hubby or his his uh, significant other. I don't know. I never really understood if they were married or not. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, as he's going there with a the chopper, you know, whose motorcycle is this? it's a chopper, baby. Well, whose chopper is this? Zed. Who's Zed? Zed's dead. But if you notice on the gas tank, the name of the chopper is Grace, and so he rides off after this moment of redemption on Grace. 
And so this, you know, just this. It's very Flannery O'Connor. Very much, yeah. very much. And so this idea of like the, the heroes are the ones who effectively embrace form, who, who kind of try to rescue some semblance of meaning from the, the formlessness that, you know, Hollywood in many ways represents. That's why I think, you know, he, he is kind of tongue in cheeks praising Hollywood uh, in, in this in his latest film. But even that, it's it's a false ending. And there's this sort of moment of apotheosis of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character that it's fake. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the, if you take a step back, you know, it's nice, it's it's comforting, but it's it's not substantial. And so I you know I do think he has kind of a critique on the modern formlessness. And in no way is he a Christian necessarily. Uh, I, I think he's inescapably going to be influenced by Christian views, and it's going to come sure, through yeah. in his work. But uh, but I think in general, he he's trying to sort of rescue meaning in his stories. I often wonder with artists like this who create work that is not distinctively Christian, but clearly incorporates Christian ideas or is wrestling with Christian ideas. I often wonder if they are really wrestling with this themselves, or if they just think that it makes a compelling story, if mm. that makes sense. I think it's so written into our our psyche Right. Uh, I don't believe in archetypes as a metaphysical reality, but they're kind of helpful um, to, to conceptualize the idea that the Christian archetypes of what a hero does, a hero mm-hmm. sacrifices themselves. You know, it's a very Christ-like thing to do. That's so ingrained in who we are. And, and you can see that from any, any culture, why that would be a valuable thing. Um, you know, somebody who is willing to sub- subordinate their own good for the good of the community. You know, in a tribal mentality, that would and I'm sure there are countless stories of those in different mythologies and things of that nature, but there's something about um, sort of the transcendent value of it, that it's not just a local good. It's, it's a transcendent eternal good. Um, That I think is, is harder to identify in a lot of these works, but to see the value of, again, what we can really identify as Christian goods or Christian narratives. um, Yeah. They're inescapable. Um, there was a, a miniseries a couple of years ago on HBO called Rome and the character that played Mark Antony in sort of one of the extras um, or one of the, the DVDs that had sort of uncut interview footage, yeah, special features. Stuff, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, James Purifoy, the guy who played Mark Antony, he, uh, he kind of made an interesting comment that for them to get into a pre-Christian way of thinking was very difficult. They didn't anticipate how hard it was because so much of our life, even in a post-Christian world, is, is influenced by a Christian ethos, the value of the individual, um, you know, at least a, an ostensible value for life, um, that you don't just go and you know, beat somebody over the head and take what's theirs because you want to and get away with it. To get a, around a, a Christian mentality, you know, just that comment that he made, that, that's hard. And so you know, in storytelling, I can imagine similarly that's very difficult. At the same time, there's a reason why superhero films are so popular. Right. Because it's this sort of Christ-like figure, this image of someone who in many ways is larger than life, although superhero films have been starting to humanize the characters a lot more intensely. Uh, but you still see in that senses of justice, self-sacrifice, integrity, commitment, um, other family values, things of that nature. All the things that Nietzsche hated. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned the uh, nostalgia that Tarantino has for the old days of Hollywood, and you've also briefly talked about his new movie, but... What are your thoughts on the new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? You know, I, I definitely have to tip my hat to Bishop Robert Barron, uh, and he's got a recently 
released YouTube video on that. That's, I'll uh, link it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's excellent. But, uh, you know, having seen that and I still am processing it a little bit and I don't want to give any spoilers, but I, I do believe it's, it's this confrontation between sort of the, the, the projection into formlessness that the West threw itself and Hollywood being kind of the tip of the spear, uh, and these characters that in many ways come from a different time, um, intentional, yeah, it probably is intentional. Like the, the setting of the main character having made his, his real, uh, his a name for himself in Westerns, Westerns in literature and in film have always been a way to consider different moral issues removed from our present context. Same thing with sci-fi, right? It becomes a medium, a helpful medium to consider things that otherwise might have too much sort of baggage because it's too close to us. And so, you know, these, these guys who kind of came from a particular cut are, sort of nearing the end of their careers as the world is turning mm-hmm. and um and just so these are these are guys who started movies like magnificent seven or high noon or something like that yeah they're all they're all sort of internal to the the tarantino universe yeah yeah but um but just but just you know yeah. movies like that as an example yeah gunslinging movies, hero saves a town exactly yeah kids would have you know wanted to watch this show every week had posters of them on their walls right just the 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 spotless hero um, that was kind of the, the mentality. And so then you start to see that shift, you know, their private lives behind, you know, off screen and then how they, how that dynamic interrates, interrelates with other people. And then again, what, uh, what the world was turning into around them and how to cope with that. I heard a, a review about this that talked about how, uh, Tarantino used period music very painstakingly, which speaks to the attention to detail that he has in his films and, Every sequence, every sound bite is carefully selected and chosen. But apparently, it's very true to the decades when it's sort of recounting the time through Hollywood. It's very true to what was going on then and what, were, what was playing on the radio at the time and things like that, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, and that's why he's so fun to watch is because he does care about the details and things are consistent. They they have sort of a richness to it. There's a texture to his films that you really don't see in many other films. I also understand there's almost an hour long sequence that's a spaghetti western in the movie is that right it, pretty close yeah. yeah yeah what do you make of that you know um he, he's a big fan of those and i think maybe because of that nostalgia that clarity just that wanted form. to have some fun <laughs> yeah and that's the other thing i think he's free to have fun yeah he makes films that he enjoys making and and that's you know you, you hear a lot of uh musical artists they write songs that they enjoy listening to that's that seems to be generally a recipe for success um exceptions always exist but uh, the fact that he enjoys what he does and that he's drawing on these different um, images and characters and movies and inspirations that's that's worked for him. Um, a few of his movies, I think he, he probably needed to go back to a little bit more of that and not be so uh, not trying to make such a point yeah. about certain things. But, you know, that's uh, that's another podcast, I suppose. Well, I'm excited to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It, based on what I've heard about it and read about it, it seems like it might be one of his more, more interesting films. It's, it's definitely, uh, the, the best of his last three, uh, last four, maybe, uh, I mean, in glorious bastards, uh, what, what this is now number I can nine. look up the, I'll look up the order, but cause yeah. he, he has one more, right? He said he's going to make 10. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yep. So and who knows? I was nervous about this one just because the, the content or having to do with, uh, with the Tate murders and right. Charles Manson, like, how are you going to do this and tread lightly? It is still way too soon. Right. Um, but it, it, but uh, he, from what I understand, and I don't want to spoil it either, but I, I listened to a podcast with spoilers and it sounds like he figured out a way to tread around it that. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And, uh, and actually Tate's sister 
uh, was initially against it, read the script, met with Tarantino, and was uh, she approved it. Oh, okay. Wow. So let's see. The movies that he has directed. So, so starting with Pulp Fiction, right? Uh, so. It was a. Um, Reservoir, no, Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir Dogs, right? Yep. So Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, can't say it. Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. Kill Bill 1 and 2, Grindhouse, Inglorious Bastards, Django, Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Yep. Um, so this is the best one since Inglorious Bastards. That's your I would favorite. say, yeah. All right. I mean, Django, it wasn't my favorite. I think that's... He was he was really trying to lay heavy into um, you know certain racial racial issues that yeah. were very much in the news uh, and they still are obviously but um, I can't remember the exact timing but you started to see a lot of the the different riots and things like that going on around the country but uh, what a, one of the things I like about Django Unchained is sort of the image of redemption woven into that story itself you've got literally Django who is rescued from slavery by a dentist but. It seems to be in this movie that the teeth are kind of an image of the soul. And, you know, Django originally had pretty bad teeth uh, proper to the time. And this dentist, in many ways, is kind of like a Christ figure Mm -hmm. as the dentist, rescuing him from this. And as he spends more time with him, his teeth get better. Uh, Django's, his his love interest, she has perfect teeth. She's, you know, kind of a a pure soul. Uh, You see the arch-villain also played like played by Leonardo DiCaprio and then his sidekick, um, Samuel L. Jackson, they've got horrible teeth and uh, DiCaprio's character is Mr. Candy. Candy rots your teeth. <laughs> yeah, he's right. kind of the devil. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see it in his behavior and in his, he's very maniacal. Uh, but just sort of that image, again, of redemption woven through in such a very simple way that... Um, yeah, bad teeth. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's impressive. Um, okay, well, as a final note here, I don't want to scandalize anybody who who now listens to this and thinks they need to go watch all Tarantino films. So what would you say to someone who um, who's interested in watching these? I mean, do we need to issue a watch with caution thing here? Or is it, uh, I think it might be helpful for people to just, um, you know, to go see it and then pray through what they saw because I think there's stuff to process there. And I think that these things can help us um, better encounter our human condition, but uh, we should be intentional about the way we do that. What would you say? Uh, perennial advice know yourself know yourself if this is something that uh you want to dip your big toe into the water uh maybe start with jackie brown and you know kind of expand out from there but um you know always with with whatever movies we watch tv shows music we listen to uh never be uncritical we should never just sort of passively consume things this every every movie book song is a manifestation of the human condition in one way shape or form conscious or unconscious and to find that we can see things that are helpful, that can sort of expand not only our imagination, but our capacity for empathy, for compassion, but also to help kind of make us a bit more aware and, and realistic about the human condition and seeing within these varieties of expressions, the highest aspirations or some of the deepest longings that people have, whether it's just for sense and meaning or more explicitly in certain works for God, for redemption, for forgiveness. So yeah, tr- Tread lightly, know yourself, start with, you know, like I said, Jackie Brown, that's a, that's, it's a good one. Um, that's probably got more mild, more mild. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, from there, see how you do. And then maybe go from there. Okay. You know, Pulp Fiction is, <laughs> is kind of the standard. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you. The final thing I, I try to ask this of every guest who comes on, but uh, I love ending by talking about a saint. So what saint has been on your mind lately? 
that we should know about. Mm. You know, I've got a uh, kind of a friendship. I like to speak about friendships with saints because I yeah. really do think that they they kind of pick us, especially with our namesakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a friendship that I've really appreciated with a saint most recently is uh, long, kind of a longtime friend, Saint Jose Maria Escriva. And I've just had the opportunity to share some of the benefits that I've learned or sort of um, received over the years from that from that friendship. And uh, he's very much a saint about holiness in the ordinary things mm-hmm. that um, sometimes we can um, either whitewash the faith and and sort of make it something that it's not robbing it of grace, robbing it of sort of its its grittiness, um, but also just looking can, to consider how we do things and doing them well is is part of our our. Uh, road to holiness so whether it's being uh, a movie uh, movie director whether it's an actor whether it's a writer whether it's you know being a janitor whatever we do to you know to do it with a certain amount of intentionality and to see in those moments that just kind of the ordinary moments uh really concrete opportunities for grace to enter into our lives i love that well thank you so much yeah I, i've appreciated his ideas because sometimes it's hard as a catholic who is uh, often caught up in the mundane tasks of daily life and you know, being a dad and changing diapers and things like that. It's it's hard to feel like you're engaged in a holy vocation, but I think St. Maria reminded all of us that we are. We're all called to holiness no matter what we're doing, so that's a great reminder. I also appreciate St. Therese for similar reasons, just that she talked about the little way and um, it's it's very easy to, to be daunted by biographies of saints like St. Catherine of Siena <laughs> because she was not a little unextraordinary person. She was a very extraordinary person who did great things. And so when you read her story, for example, it's easy to think, oh, I'm never going to be like this. So I love St. Therese and St. Josemaria for reminding us that that's not what God calls all of us to do. Right. So thank you for that. Thank you for joining us on Credo Catholic. Hopefully you want to come back again soon talk about some other things but i love talking about quentin tarantino movies with you and we'll talk about number 10 when that one comes out yeah absolutely thanks so much for having me